We're going to be looking in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. And uh, that's on page 401 in your Bible. If you've got one of the Bibles out of the pew. So page 401. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're just going to read straight through the passage. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on the fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say, so I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in this work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from around the nations, from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good... Oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to to hear your word today and to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be shaped. 
God, I pray that uh, you would not leave us just as we came in, but that you would be doing something in us to convict us, to shape us, to draw out good desires in our heart. God, would you, would you move on us? Lord, we're, we are helpless without you, but we trust your word that, that you will not let your word return void. And so we, we just ask, Lord, would you bring us, bring us nearer to you today through this, that the word wouldn't have a hardening effect on us. None of us will leave the same. We will either be more closed to repentance or more in love with you. God, would you do that for us? Help us to right now commit to yes to you, to realize you're the Lord and uh, we submit ourselves to you and to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at Nehemiah chapter 5. Been walking through for a few weeks now. So far, the wall is built to half its height, and the enemy has kind of been kept at bay, saying Ballot and Tobiah have been thwarted in their plans to stop this work. And so things are feeling pretty good. But now, external pressures are kind of on the low, but internal pressures have sprung up. We've got poverty, a famine in the land, and it's causing financial distress that is threatening the work. It's uh, a threat to the, to the people's obedience to God. There was this outcry that came to Nehemiah. There's three groups of people. If you look in this first little section here, there's three groups of people, or at least three complaints that come. The first group comes and they say, we have a big family. We've got a lot of mouths to feed, and there's not enough grain. So let us, let us leave, and let us go and get grain so that we, eat, we can eat and keep alive. The next group right behind them comes and says, we've sold everything. We've mortgaged the house. We've mortgaged the field. We've taken all of our stuff to the pawnbroker, and we don't have anything left. We're destitute. And the next group right behind them comes and says, we've mortgaged the house to borrow money for the king's tax, and now we don't have anything else to sell. And so we're selling our own children into slavery. And Nehemiah probably looks around to see, is there anybody else coming? Because I can't imagine what is happening next. Each person comes with a story that tops the last guy. So what on earth could be next? Well, thankfully, that's, that's all. But let's stop here for a second and see what's going on. What's the complaint? What's the complaint that they're bringing? Is there somebody to blame? Or is this just life happening? You know, sometimes there's a famine. Sometimes there's a drought. And the cards don't always go the way that you expected. Is that what's happening? Or is there somebody to blame here? I mean, the rich, rich business guy, he's the obvious go-to. Because he's the one who's taking their kids as slaves. So he's the one to blame. But you look at him and he says, well, don't blame me for making them alone. I mean, they needed the money. They were willing to pay the interest. I... It was all right there in writing. If you don't pay me back, I'm going to take your house. I'm going to pay, I'm going to take your vineyard. They didn't pay me back, and so I took their stuff back. It's all, it's all right there. If the way I see it, if I hadn't made them the loan, they'd have already died. They were starving. They needed the money, and, and you can't blame me for, for taking back their house. That's what we all agreed to. They, everybody went into this eyes wide open. 
We all saw what was what this wasn't. Can't blame me. Sounds legitimate to me. What about the what about the father? We blame the father. I mean, he was he was working always to make the ends meet. You know, he's always scraping to make things come together. So he couldn't see this famine coming. And even if he could, he couldn't have done anything about it. So, I mean, what's, you can't blame the dad. I mean, you can't blame the ground. It just does what the rain does for it. Doesn't have a grudge against you. If you, if it gets rain, it'll make a crop. If it doesn't get rain, nothing coming out. Who's to blame? Well, let's blame capitalism for a second. I think this is when capitalism goes wrong. This is, this is when capitalism goes wrong. And capitalism can go wrong just like communism can go wrong. We don't like that because we live in a capitalistic world. But it, it's not God's system with money. It's not God's method with money. Let's just be honest here for a second. We're all Americans. We're prone to feel capitalism is the right thing. But it's not God's method with money. It can go wrong just like communism can go wrong. When somebody gets in the wrong position to be able to take advantage of the system and use it for their own devices, it can produce great evils. You know, if we, if we take the definition of capitalism, of what fair price is, fair price is, is what a willing buyer and a willing seller agree upon. Whatever that is, you know, that's a fair price. Sounds good to me. On the surface, it sounds good. But if we just take that definition, we can get away with a lot of injustice still. What is every interrogation room in every movie Hollywood has ever made say? Before the guys walk into the interrogation room, the bad guys walk in, they say, we're going to make them talk. And we know when they walk through that door, they're not going to be holding a plate full of cookies and a glass of milk. Mm, these cookies are so good. I bet you wish you had some. If you just tell me where that treasure is, I'll give you a whole slew of these cookies. That's, that's not what's going to happen. They're about to make their hostage willing to talk by use of torture. Through, through torture, they're going to make their hostage willing to share information that he's simultaneously not willing to share. The hostage has two wills. The will to protect the information and keep his treasure or his, or his friends safe. And he has a strong desire not to experience pain. And as soon as the desire to not experience any more pain gets stronger than the desire to protect his treasure, he talks. The point is, we can be willing to do things that we're not willing to do, all things being equal. Sometimes when, you're, when your choices are severely limited, you're willing to do things that you wouldn't normally do. You get two options, talk or the hammer. <laughs> I know which one I want to do. It only takes a couple whacks with a hammer before I know I want to talk. Let's talk about anything. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk. That's my favorite thing to do. I'd say almost all people who live in poverty make decisions that they know are not the best decisions, but they're the only choices that they have available. They're the only ones that at least seem available to them. And so they're willing to do things that they wouldn't be willing to do normally. And rich people smugly sit on the sidelines and blame people, blame poor people for their bad decisions. 
But those were the only decisions that they had available, the only ones that they knew about at least. Taking out a high interest loan like these people did in order to buy food is a bad decision. You go to Taco Bell and keep running your credit card and you're paying 20% to buy food at Taco Bell, that's not likely to work out well for you. If you go and buy uh, some grain to plant for a harvest at a high interest, that's a better decision. If that's your only decision, that's a better decision. But if you sitting there watch your child die of hunger while you wait for the, the plant to spring up, that'd be a bad decision. So maybe you make this plan. Maybe, maybe you say, call your kid over and you say, hey, Noah, hey, listen, buddy, daddy loves you so much. Daddy loves you so much, but um, that guy over there is my, my second cousin, and he's a really nice guy, and he's going he's gonna to be good to you, okay? And, and daddy's going to work so hard, okay? Daddy's going to work so hard. And this fall, uh, whenever you see the plants growing, you know I'm about to come back and get you, okay? Whenever, whenever you see that harvest coming, I'm, I'm going to be right there. And then you take and sell your kid, and you wait for the harvest, and you put that seed in the ground, and you watch as the famine comes and the drought comes and that thing withers in the ground, and that would be a bitter decision. These people are mortgaging their fields, their houses, just to buy a little grain. And the last thing you want to do is to sell your tools. If you sell your tools, how can you provide for yourself anymore? Now, I'll sell my, I'll sell my house before I sell my car. If I sell my car, I can't get back and forth to work. So I mean, we'll live on the street if we need to, but I've got to sell the house. A farmer without a field is a sad thing. That's what's happened. They've mortgaged their fields. They've mortgaged everything. They were willing to sell their own children into slavery. Willing to sell them. There's a transaction happening here. There's a buyer, there's a seller. Both people are saying, "It's, it's a good price. I'll take it. I'll sell my kid, maybe with the hope to buy him back. But... I'll sell my kid. And the, and the seller's saying, that's a good price, I'll buy him. There's a transaction. It's not like pirates are coming in in the middle of the night and stealing the children. They're selling their own children willingly. Of course the question is, willingly in what sense? Willingly in what sense? Sometimes coercion forces the will of a person to want something that they wouldn't normally want. That's the plight of people in poverty. That's the decision that they're facing. And until your elbow's deep in the problem, you probably won't understand that. And you'll stand on the sidelines and say stupid things and say, why do they go to that check-cashing place and they get such a crazy hit with fees until you realize they had a few bounced checks already and they're on this checklist and they can't, they can't go to a bank and cash the check. So they pay the fees. And then you think, why do they go to that stupid grocery store? Discount? That place is so overpriced and such terrible quality. Why do they shop there? Ludicrous. And then you just realize that, oh, look at the number of people who are walking away from that place. A lot of these people don't have cars, and it's just close by, so that's where they're going. They've got limited options. I've lived on some streets where I'm one of the few people who owns a car. (laughs) And so... You just walk where you got to go. You go to the, the cheap grocery store or cheap value, whatever. 
when you have limited options, the, the, that's the plight of cal capitalism. The, the more money you have, the easier it is to make good choices. The less money you have, the harder it is. All things being equal, I didn't come in here today looking for somebody to hand my wallet to you. But if as I'm walking out the door, somebody sticks a gun in my face and says, your money or your life, I'm going to feel overcome me this strange desire to get my wallet out as quickly as I can and hand it to this guy without scaring them so that they pull the trigger. You know, I just got to, it's a delicate balance. You got to be kind of quick and help them out, but not too fast and scare them. These people don't want these deals, all things being equal, but they don't have any choice. And they come to Nehemiah and say, we borrowed money because our circumstances were dire. And now the people who own the debts, the people who we borrowed money from, own all the stuff that gave us income, and we don't have any way out anymore. Our flesh is like their flesh. Nehemiah, they're our own kin. This is our own flesh and blood. The same blood that's in my veins is in theirs. We have the same grandpa. This is our own. We are a nation together. My children are not less loved than theirs, but because of finances, mine are slaves. They used to be schoolmates, but now mine are his slaves. That's the complaint. You hear that in this last guy's complaint? That's the complaint. The complaint wasn't, they're rich, or, and we're poor. Distribute everything evenly. That wasn't the complaint. Nehemiah was rich. Nehemiah was very rich. He fed 150 people every day in the middle of a famine on his own dime. You've got to be pretty well off to be able to do that. The problem was that the rich people were abusing the power that people's desperation had given them. You've got leverage when the other person is desperate. What would, you, what would you take for your car? I just put new tires on the van. So I, I'd probably take 4800 for our van. Sarah doesn't want me to say that because she doesn't want to sell the van. But uh, anyone looking for a van, you know, take 4800 <laughs> If in a couple months uh, I've lost my job, I'd be right here in this first category of people because, well, a couple months we'll have a new baby girl, uh, that'll be four kids, so a lot of mouths to feed. <laughs> I need to go get some grain, got to do something. Lost my job. So I've fallen into hard times, so I go to Dan Bourne, because we all know he's super loaded. And, uh, and I, I'd say, hey, the, uh, the DFS came by the other day because uh, they saw somebody had made a report that our, our kids didn't look like they were being taken care of. I mean, the, the washing machine broke down, and their, their clothes are kind of a mess right now. It's not a big deal, but... Uh, they were already there, so they were doing some poking around, you know, stuck their head in the pantry, and, and it was empty, and, and they uh, stuck their head in the fridge, and it was pretty pretty close. So and they did some tests and, and determined that our kids are slightly malnourished, and so uh, long story short, if, if I don't get uh, them back up to full health in two weeks when they come back, then they're going to take them and place them with another family. Is there, you know, is there anything that you can do, uh, you, know, you know anybody who can help? And he says, oh man, that's, uh, well, I, I saw you had a new newer van. Um, I guess I, I could buy that from you. And I said, oh man, that'd be, that'd be great. Is, uh, hey, what, what would you give me for it? And he says, uh, just, you know, what would you take? I said, well, 
it's always good to make the other person talk, so he keeps throwing it back on me. So I said, I, if I got $2,000, I think, I think that that would get me, you know, my, my food and, and get me a little bit of seed that I could be able to plant and, and uh, get a harvest going. So if I got $2,000, I think that'd be enough. Oh, he says, that's, you know, a couple months ago that would have been easy, but now, you know, the famine and everything, and I just, uh, I give you 1200 I'll take it, I say. Like Esau to Jacob, what use is a birthright if I die of hunger? Make me a bowl of soup. That kind of shrewdness is what's prized in the world. That's what finance majors around the globe are going to school to learn, to, to limit your exposure, to maximize your cover, to charge the highest amount of interest and fees and mock all those people out there who have a bleeding heart. I say all that, and I consider myself somewhat of a business person. I want to be able to make a profit. I want to be able to provide a job for other people someday if I have employees. I want to be able to make a profit, keep this thing going, and, and not just for that. I want to have something left over at the end of the day, and I want to be able to use the money for kingdom purposes. I want to be able to do good things with it, but there's no sense in robbing poor people in order to give tithes back to God. In the end, he'll hold it against you. In the end, he'll say to you, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I'm not saying that you can't make a profit just in a business deal just because the other person is poorer than you are. But I am saying that lovelessness is substandard in the Christian life in every sphere. And that doing justice, doing justly, has to do with more than just not telling lies. But it, it was all right there in the contract. I mean, they, they saw it. Everything was there in writing. Everybody went into this eyes wide open. Yeah, it was there. It was above board. Loveless. Merciless. They were supposed to be family. That's the accusation. That's the complaint. God's law for them was that they should not charge each other interest. And not just that they shouldn't charge each other interest, but that every seven years they had to forgive whatever debt was outstanding. Not just every like seven years from the date of the transaction, but on the seventh year. So somebody comes to you on the sixth year, you can't look in and say, oh, next year I have to forgive this whole thing. I'm not going to make this loan. That's specifically forbidden. Don't look in, God says in Deuteronomy 15, don't look in your heart and have this evil thought. Next year is the year of Jubilee, and I'm going to have to forgive the whole thing. So I don't want to make that loan today. You've got to make them the loan. No interest. You can't say no. Sounds like a good place to be if you're a poor person. Sounds like a great place, great society to live in. Especially if you're dishonest. Especially if you're lazy. We, we talk about the abuse that happens in the welfare system today. But can you imagine the type of abuse that might have happened in that system? And don't, don't think, oh, they were all Israelites. They're God-fearing people. There's lazy people in the church. Laziness is a human condition. It's a sin problem. It's, it's a temptation. It's universal across all ages, all people. doesn't matter. You don't think that people would have abused that system? But that got abused. 
didn't, didn't excuse people, didn't excuse them from, being, from giving the loan. If you said to me, man, it'd be, it'd be hard to make money like that, I would say to you, yep. That's what I'd have to say, yep. But God is able to make all grace abound to you. Seek first his kingdom. All these other things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Seek the kingdom payoff. Seek the kingdom benefit. Don't seek a mere lifetime of success and watching the figures grow. Seek the kingdom benefit. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. So that's the complaint. They're ripping us off. His brothers, they're not loving us. That's what, what was God trying to teach them when he made this law? Because that was God's idea. That wasn't just, you know, made up from nowhere. That's God's idea, this law. What's God trying to teach them when he makes this law? To love one another. To treat each other the way that they wanted to be treated. That doesn't just show up in the New Testament. Consider others' needs as more important than your own. Consider others more important than yourself. That doesn't just show up in Philippians. I think it's in Philippians. But it doesn't just show up later in the Bible. It's there in God's law. And Nehemiah's response to this complaint and to this abuse. He got angry. He got very angry. And I took counsel with myself. He doesn't just blow up. He goes away and takes counsel with himself. I suppose that's enough time to let this guy talk and this guy talk and hash it all out and come up with a plan and come back. And that's what he does. He goes away, it seems, takes counsel, and he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. He comes and brings it before this whole great assembly. He gets this whole crew together, a great assembly, and he charges them with what they've been doing that's wrong. This thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations? He brings these charges against him. And I just thought, man, aren't you thankful for the mercy of church discipline? Sometimes the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your own conscience have been muted for so long that it ceases to, to bug you as it ought to. But this whole great assembly coming to you and saying, brother, turn from this. Guys, stop ripping each other off. Guys, stop this. This isn't what God wants us to be for each other. And they, they approach, Nehemiah brings this great assembly against the, the nobles and the officials, and then they repent. And this is just people in the church who love you, who you know love you to the death, coming to you and say, brother, turn from this. This is going to destroy your life. This is going to ruin you. Turn from this. Church discipline should not be 30 angry people in a business meeting someplace, voting somebody out of the church. It's take somebody with you. You go to him. You talk to him about it. Take some more people with you. Go to him. You talk to him about it. And then bring the whole church to come and plead with this guy. Come on. Don't, don't do this. Repent. Turn. This is going to separate you from God forever. Do you want that? Is it worth that? All these people that you know that love you, pleading with you to repent. 
So he holds this assembly against them and he demands that they repay. But then he doesn't stop there. I mean, they, were, they, they all said, we'll do what you want. We'll give it back. Yes, let's do it. And then he still calls the priests and has them do this whole thing all over again. Like, he makes it, he formalizes it. He makes this, this official. He gets the priest, like, you're going to swear to the priest that you're going to do this thing. So there's no, there's no, you know, back alley. All right, we, we, we said we would do it, but not too many people know about it. And we can, we can back out on this deal. He formalizes it. Does he, does he not trust him, you think? You think maybe he doesn't trust him? Maybe. Or maybe he just knows it's easier to mean good and it's harder to walk in it. And so he's going to trust, but he's going to validate. Trust, but verify. There's no reason that trust means no accountability. Trust just means when I check in, I expect everything's going to be fine. But we're still going to have accountability here. So he, Nehemiah says, we'll have none of that, no accountability stuff. All of you up on stage, let's hands over the heart. Let's all say, I won't play, I won't steal my brother's stuff. I'll give him back everything I took. And when they're in the middle of their pledge, Nehemiah starts jiggling about up on stage with his coat, shaking stuff out of his coat, you know, all the lint, all the cookie crumbs and stuff that's in your pockets and he's just shaking all that kind of stuff out of there and and says so may God shake you out of his house if you don't do the thing that you're promising to do he he uh, declares a curse on them if they turn back and all the assembly said amen and praise the Lord and I just thought man that would have been an electric moment to see all of these leaders and officials repenting. You know, it's, it's an awesome thing when individually you're, you repent of something and you turn. But it would be breathtaking to watch all the people, the leaders in society, repent together. And you, in that moment, reimagining what a, a society built on God's law would look like. And you can do that. You don't even have to be a business person to do that. You just have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what was going on. That was what was gone wrong. We're talking about money. But all it is is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's just considering others' needs as more important than your own. You can do that. You don't have to be a rich person to do this. You can just be in the cafeteria and see somebody sitting across the way and you're about ready to go sit with your friends who you really wanted to see and then See that person? They're always sitting alone. After church, that person's always alone. Go talk to them. So it's real hard. You've got to walk over and you've got to say, Hi, how's it going? That's all we're talking about. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not, it's not a hard thing, although it is incredibly hard, to consider other people's needs as more important than my own needs. My own need for, friend, for a friend no, I'm going to consider their need for a friend. Consider their need for someone to speak Christ into their life. So, Nehemiah, we'll go back to considering his example here. He's, he's the governor, uh, I think, in verse 14. 
Um, he's the governor. He's got this big allowance. He's got this um, call. Everybody before him, the example before him, is that the governors take this huge tax on the people, and it was really hard for the people. But Nehemiah says no to that. He's loving He's laying down his rights in order to love other people. Nehemiah was far from being a pauper. You know, he, he fed 150 people at his own, on his own dime every day. I couldn't imagine paying for that much food day in and day out, much less having a house big enough to seat everybody or a table big enough. He even says it's had 150 people at his table. So if you take that literally, that's pretty immense. I'm not sure if they all like crowded around and like sat on the outsides of the walls around a central table. I don't know. But in any case, buying food for 150 people every day would be pretty, a pretty good strain on anybody's budget. But he obviously had some flow. Yet, Nehemiah was the person that people were coming to when they were poor. And they were complaining about the rich people. So he was rich. But they weren't accusing him. He had stuff, but he had integrity. He was not selling their, their children as slaves. In fact, he was buying them back from the other nations. And he wasn't, he wasn't just paying for it out of his own pocket. He was at the same time saying no to us, an accepted standard. And people wouldn't even blink at that. That's normal. The, the governor gets paid. We expect that. Doesn't do it on his own dime. But Nehemiah did. And it's easy for us to sit and say, oh, okay, Nehemiah was rich. Now it all makes sense. It's easy for him to say these things because he was so wealthy. But, and it's easy for us to imagine, well, we'd be generous too if we were rich like Nehemiah was. But the truth is, gen- generosity is always easier thought of than it is done. It's really easy for me to imagine myself generous towards somebody and almost walk away feeling like I've been generous. It's just in my head. <laughs> it hasn't actually shown itself yet. If I, there, there may be people right now in Sudan. And there's millions of people there, so it could be that somebody right now is mouthing the words, then if I had, mo- uh, if I had food three times a day, that'd be enough, and I'd give, I'd give everything else. That's all I need. If I just had food three times a day, that's, that'd be enough. But as heartless as it sounds, I think that's probably not true. In all likelihood, they're deceiving themselves. Because the problem of generosity is not solved by getting more stuff. The problem is solved by becoming like Jesus and considering others' needs as more important than your own. So I've got I've to say, like, this last year, I was pretty disappointed when we got, we got our giving statement back. I didn't, I didn't give as much. I imagined myself to be more generous than I was. You know, BC wasn't the only place we gave, but we sure wanted to give more than we did. So I'd stand up here on stage and say, God, God teach me to be generous. God, teach me to, be, to consider others more important. But Nehemiah was a great example of us to us, of planned generosity. He refused to take a salary because it only added to the burden of the people. And he says, 
in the end of this chapter, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And I just think, man, Nehemiah, that just about goes without saying. God will remember it. He has recorded it. Not just in the Bible, but in his own book and every thing that happened that we don't even see there in the pages of Scripture will be remembered for your good, for your everlasting joy. It will be remembered. Unlike millions of people who became successful for a mere lifetime and who will be forgotten altogether. It doesn't have to be about money. It doesn't have to be about giving. It ought to be with money, but it didn't stop there. Brian and Cassie, across the globe, if you can hear, I want you to know today that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. All the trials that you experience that prove the genuineness of your faith will never be forgotten. Though millions of people pursue fleeting and fatal success, the tested genuineness of your faith will be more valuable than all the gold that is stacked between Cahoka, where Brian's from, and Anderson, where Cassie's from, piled to the stars. And for you and me here in this room, what will be the story for our lives that we will say, God, remember for my good? Because I'm telling you, he will remember. There will be nothing that is lost in the service of King Jesus. And, and all the stories that we endeavor that don't turn out in some kind of a success that we can point to in this world won't be forgotten. I kind of think God looks on those even more highly because people who succeed in this world and can point to, yes, this accomplished this, have some measure of comfort in this world, but sometimes the stories don't end up that way and you wait for the day when all the, all the scales are going to swing to balance and God's going to remember it. And in the last day, he will remember so I just plead with you to love your neighbor as yourself, to store up treasures in heaven. Consider others. And don't succumb to the pressures of lovelessness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've loved us in such a way that, uh, that you free us to be able to love other people. You are for us a rock. You are for us a constant stream of blessing. And so we can be freed to love other people as, as we ought because you've loved us so much that we have no needs. We don't stand in a place of lack. Through Christ, we are more than conquerors. Through Christ, we are co-heirs. There's nothing that we need, Lord, if we have you so God, from that place of joy, from that place of freedom, would you teach us to be generous? Would you teach us to lay ourselves down in the cause of, of loving other people and to show them the great God who has loved us? 
Give us words this week. Give us actions. Give us hearts that are aflame with love for you, Lord. Thank you for this example today. Pray that you would rivet it into our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.